How many moments of unalloyed bliss have you ever experienced in your life? Moments when you were supremely happy with no clouds at all crossing the sun of your contentment. I think I can count such times maybe on just one hand. Jeannie and I went on our second honeymoon the week of our first anniversary. I thought that was a great idea. I mean, why wait till your 25th or your 50th to go on your second honeymoon? We somehow found a house for rent one block from the beach in North Myrtle uh, that was within our, our tight newlywed budget. And we had the whole house to ourselves. We spent our days on the beach uh, collecting shells and our evenings visiting the little shops in Myrtle Beach. This was in 1979 before uh, Myrtle Beach was so heavily commercialized. And it was, it was a, a wonderful week. It should have been one entire week of unalloyed bliss like I just described. However, we didn't quite have the house all to ourselves. Each evening when we would come back from a restaurant or a shop, we would walk into the dark house and turn on the lights and find a convention of roaches in the middle of the floor. And, of course, we tried to stomp on them, but there were too many, and they would scatter in all directions. And so we understood that we were no doubt sharing the house that week with other uninvited guests. Have you ever asked yourself why it is that there always seems to be roaches, either literal or metaphorical, to ruin our bliss? You know, I wonder how many times Adam and Eve asked themselves this question once they were on outside of the gates of the garden. Only it wasn't a roach. It was a serpent. Think of the situation described in the first two chapters of, of Genesis. Unalloyed bliss, paradise, heaven on earth, in a word, the Garden of Eden. Every need was met bountifully without toil or drudgery, and it was wedded bliss. The joy that I tried to describe last Sunday, that one flesh, one person relationship of husband and wife in perfect agape unity. Their utter enjoyment of one another without any fear or suspicion or discord. And God himself described all of it. It was very good. That's where we find ourselves at the end of Genesis chapter 2. How is it that by the end of Genesis 3... The peace and the joy and the contentment of this scene are forever shadowed. Now there would always be roaches to ruin our best moments. How did that happen? Well, we find the answer in the first half of the first verse 
of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And we will get no further than that sentence this morning. Now Bible-believing Christians have no trouble identifying this serpent. Revelation 12 and verse 9 calls him that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And so before we can make any more progress in our study of this book, we need to answer the question, where did Satan come from? This morning we want to trace the beginning of Satan's story. And I kind of laughed with my wife on the way here today. This is a perfect Sunday to preach about Satan. Gray, raining, stormy. And so we're going to try to answer that question this morning. Why is this supernatural being who was created by God so antagonistic to God and to God's people? Now, Scripture does not directly explain the origin of Satan. I mean, obviously, here in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent simply appears out of nowhere with no explanation. We're not even told directly that it is Satan. We have to surmise that fact. Much of the information that the Bible gives us about the origin of Satan is shrouded in shadow. It seems to me that God doesn't ever want to shine a spotlight on Satan. And so there are very few direct statements in Scripture about Satan. Most Bible scholars look to two passages in the Old Testament for clues about the origin of Satan. Both of them are in Old Testament prophetic books. Both passages are actually denunciations of earthly kings. But in both of these passages, there, there are statements that don't seem to apply to human beings, that seem to extend beyond these earthly kings to the supernatural being who was inspiring them and leading them and using them. And so this morning we're going to dive into both of these passages. The first is found in Ezekiel chapter 28. When was the last time you opened to the book of Ezekiel? Can you find it? Ezekiel chapter 28, if you'll open your Bibles there, please. Ezekiel chapter 28, I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, the beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Now, verse 12 states very clearly that this paragraph concerns the king of Tyre. Verses 18 and 19 prophesy this king's destruction. Notice that verse 18 speaks of his trading. Tyre was a seaport known for its commercial endeavors, its trading. But in between the beginning and end of this paragraph, beginning in the middle of verse 12 and on through verse 17, these words seem to stretch beyond the human king of Tyre to denounce a supernatural being. Verse 13 states that this being was in Eden. Verse 14 calls him the anointed cherub who covers, and that identification is repeated in verse 16. So we surmise, again, in shadow, we surmise, we conclude that verses 12 through 17 are a description of Satan, and that these verses give us facts about the origin of Satan. So fact number one, Satan was a created being. Satan was a created being. Notice that verses 13 and 15 speak of the day that this being was created. That's very important. It tells us that Satan is not an eternal, all-powerful being on the same level as God. God and Satan are not two equals locked in eternal conflict, which neither of them can win. I repeat, that is not the case. Scripture never gives us reason to believe that kind of dualism. Fact number two. Satan was originally the anointed covering cherub. Satan was originally the anointed covering cherub. Verse 14 calls him the anointed cherub who covers. And it clearly states that God appointed him to this position. 
Now, cherubim are the angels who surround the throne of God and continually offer him praise. We believe that the, the, the beasts, the living creatures that we encounter in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation are also cherubim. We find cherubim are dozens of times to be found in the descriptions of the tabernacle and later the temple. And so it seems like they are connected with the worship of Yahweh time and time again. Along with the seraphim, the cherubim seem to be the highest rank of angels. Now this spirit being was originally the anointed cherub. That seems to mean that he led the worship of God, led the cherubim in the worship of God. Verse 13 refers to the workmanship of his timbrels and pipes. Timbrels and pipes are musical instruments. Was, was this being originally equipped to lead the heavenly choirs of angels in singing holy, holy, holy to the one and true God? He's also called the covering cherub. And that puts us in mind that two cherubs of gold with their wings outstretched were built into the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. And between the wings of these two cherubim was the mercy seat the very presence of Yahweh was manifest there. We could call this the throne of God on earth. And so by calling this being the covering cherub, it seems to be that, that we're, we're told we're, what's indicated here is that Satan in his, in his original perfection faced the throne of God as it were, leading the worship of God. Fact number three, Satan was originally perfect. Notice the statement in verse 12, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That statement of his perfection is repeated again in, in, in the following verses. Now this means, first of all, that he was perfect in wisdom. Now remember where we started this morning. Genesis 3.1 states, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now that word translated cunning there is an interesting word. In addition to Genesis 3, it appears ten more times in the Old Testament. Eight of those times it's found in the book of Proverbs. And it's a positive trait. Our English versions normally translate it prudent in the book of Proverbs. But it also appears two more times in the book of Job. And there it's used in a negative way. And it's normally translated crafty. And so God created this being perfect in wisdom. And after Satan fell into sin, he didn't lose this trait Rather, verse 17 says that his wisdom was corrupted. 
Rather than wise, Satan became crafty. He became cunning. He became deceitful to an extreme. Wow. Then verse 12 also says that this being was perfect in beauty. And the description that immediately follows in verse 13 seems to bear this out. Every precious stone was your covering. The stardust, tobaz, and diamond, it goes on and on. I mean, it's an amazing description. These stones reflect light in multicolored glory. Now, it's important to understand that this being was not the source of light, Who's the source of light? 1 John 1 says that God is light. And so this being could only reflect the glory of God. But he did so. He was designed to reflect the glory of God in a multicolored, glorious way. And then here's another interesting note. Just a bug in your ear. We'll talk about this more next week. Notice that this verse begins with the statement, you were in Eden, the garden of God. It's possible that this description recalls the appearance of the serpent in the garden. Rather than the repellent creature that we today call a snake, his beauty would have been attractive and appealing and that may have played a major part in the first temptation. We'll talk more about that possibility next Sunday, Lord willing. So let's put this all together. Here we have an angelic being of the highest rank, perfect in wisdom, perfect in beauty. In his beauty, he constantly reflects the glory and beauty of God facing his throne, leading the angelic hosts in the worship of Almighty God. One of the commentaries that I read called him God's prime minister at this point. But there are two more facts in this passage. Fact number four, Satan was corrupted by pride. Satan was corrupted by pride. Notice verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I want you to notice that both halves of that verse focus on this, on this person's beauty. Now, some of you remember that I preached a few months ago about the beauty of God. God is the most beautiful being in the universe, but his beauty is not physical. It's essential to who he is. He displays some of his essential beauty through the physical universe that he has created, and we talked quite a bit about that. And apparently, Satan, in his original creation, his purpose was to display the beauty of the Creator, not here on earth, but in the throne room of God in heaven. But Satan turned his created purpose on its head. 
He was lifted up in pride. And even though he simply was designed to reflect the glory and beauty of God, he wanted men, he wanted all to exalt him rather than God. He wanted men to focus on his beauty rather than the beauty of God. And of course, Satan's pride, his self-idolatry, his self-exaltation was the original sin in all creation. And it led to a fifth fact. Fact number five, Satan was cast out of heaven. Satan was cast out of heaven. Notice verse 16. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Those phrases, I don't have time to I don't have time to go into this right now, but those phrases, mountain of God and fiery stones, those are both allusions to the throne room of heaven. Now we studied the New Testament account of this event just two or three weeks ago on Wednesday night. In Revelation chapter 12, we find these verses. Listen carefully. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. Now several times in scripture, angels are symbolized by stars. And so that difficult passage that I just read from Revelation chapter 12 indicates that when Satan lifted himself up in his role as the prime minister in heaven among angels, a third of the angels followed him in his rebellion and and Satan and all of these angels were cast out of heaven to earth. That was the first fall. The fall of angels in heaven, the fall of angels from heaven. And this all happened before the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden on earth. Now, when did this happen? Well, Genesis 2 and verse 1 indicates that God finished the work of creation. It says, thus The heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And that word host in the Old Testament usually refers to the armies of Israel. Sometimes it refers to the stars, the heavenly host. But on two or three occasions it refers to the angels. And so... At some point between Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1 and Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, the events that I just described took place. Satan was lifted up with pride. God judged him and the angels that followed him by casting them to earth. So that's the first shadowy passage that gives us information about the origin of Satan. The other passage is found in Isaiah chapter 14. Will you turn there with me now, please? 
Remember that it was the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. They carried the Israelites from Judah into captivity. And here in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 3, the prophet takes up a taunt. Sounds like something childish, doesn't it? He mocks the king of, of Babylon based on how God is going to judge him. Look with me here in verse 3 in, in Isaiah 14. It shall come to pass in the day that the Lord gives you, he's talking to Israel here, gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this, many modern versions translate taunt, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, and I'm not going to read all of it until we get down to verse 9. This is, real, this is a real taunt. Hell from beneath you is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up uh, raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations. They all shall speak and say to you, Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and worms cover you. Is that great or what? So to this point in this passage... This is a prophecy of the absolute defeat and downfall and death of the king of Babylon. He will finally be brought down to the grave where he will be welcomed by the rulers of the nations. The magnificent, pompous king of Babylon will sleep forever on a maggot mattress covered by a warm blanket. But then in verse 12, the language seems to shift. And the statements seem to surpass what can be said of a human king. So read with me now, beginning in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Now I would suggest to you that up to this point, up through verse 11, this taunt was aimed at the literal, earthly king of Babylon. But beginning in verse 12, it begins to address the spiritual king of Babylon. Or you could turn it around and say the king of spiritual Babylon, who is Satan. He's called Lucifer here in verse 12. And that title, Lucifer, means morning star. And here it's paired with a second name, son of the dawn. 
mean, isn't that beautiful? Morning star, son of the dawn. And again, these titles refer to his original purpose in reflecting the glory and beauty of God. And many believe that Jesus was alluding to this passage in Luke chapter 10. You remember the story in Luke chapter 10? He sent out the 70 disciples two by two, and they went out and announced the kingdom. And when they came back, they were so excited, they were overjoyed. They said, even the demons were subject to your name. And Jesus responded to them with a rather cryptic statement. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And some Bible scholars believe that Jesus was alluding to verse 12 here. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. So this connection gives credence to the interpretation that verses 12 through 15 are really about Satan. Now the core of this paragraph in verses 13 and 14 are the five-fold I will. These five I wills give us a glimpse into the heart of Satan at the moment of his fall. They let us see the self-will and the self-exaltation that was Satan's initial sin and that led to his rebellion. So let's work our way through these five statements very quickly. I will ascend into heaven. Now, obviously, based on the passage that we were just discussing, Lucifer was already in heaven. But this statement seems to go beyond the idea that that was simply his abode this seems to be rather Satan's determination to take over, to make heaven his very own. He goes on, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. This reflects Satan's plan to spread his rebellion to the other angels. Remember what I said ago. In Scripture, angels are often symbolized by stars. And so in his pride, Satan was not content simply to rebel on his own. He sought to lead the heavenly hosts, to convince them to follow him rather than God. And then the third statement. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther side of the north. The mount of the congregation here is most likely an allusion to Jerusalem. It alludes to the fact that God's worship was centered there. And this seems to be Satan's determination to steal worship from the true God. To be the one who is worshipped and exalted rather than God himself. Now, I hope you see that, that these I will statements are building to this point. But if this is a progression, the fourth phrase seems to be out of place. It simply says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And that just seems to be a general statement of ego and pride, unless the clouds here are an allusion to the pillar of cloud, which followed the Israelites, an allusion to the Shekinah glory. 
And again, it's Satan's desire expressed here that rather than reflect the glory of the true God, Satan desires that all glory will be his. And these words express a desire on the part of Satan that can never be satisfied because Satan does not have any kind of glory in himself. He can only steal it and try to redirect it from the true and living God. And then the final crowning statement, I will be like the Most High. But I want you to notice that Satan uses a particular title for God here. God Most High. Now this title isn't used that often in the Bible. Why did Satan refer to God by this title? Well, I think we get a clue in Genesis 14. There, Abraham expands on the meaning of this divine title. There he calls God the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And when Satan here says that he wants to be like the Most High, he's expressing the ambition to have authority over all creation. Satan wants to be like God in the sense of stealing his throne and stealing his authority over all that he created. And of course, Satan's sin and rebellion brought about his judgment. His judgment. It's detailed in verse 15. God declares to Satan, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. So Satan and the angels who followed him were not just cast out of heaven to earth. They were cast into the abyss, into the pit. As we close, let's look at a couple of verses in the New Testament. Turn way back now to the end of the Bible, to Jude and verse 6. To Jude and verse 6. Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then flip back a couple of pages to 2 Peter chapter 2. In fact, just a couple of pages if you've got a, 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 an actual Bible in your hand. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. It's a very similar verse to Jude in verse 6. 2 Peter 2, 4. God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So Satan and the angels who followed him have been cast down to hell and reserved under darkness for judgment. And the way I look at this, because we've got to balance two things here, Ezekiel 28 says they were cast down to the earth. Isaiah 14 says they were cast down to hell. I would call hell Satan's abode. The pit is his home, but he isn't always home. At times he walks about as a 
roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And so while Satan has been cast down to hell and has been reserved for judgment, he doesn't necessarily stay in hell all the time. He walks the earth, he and his minions, tempting human beings. So let's tie all this together. It was this Satan, and the word Satan, the, 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 the word Satan is not a name, okay? That's not his name. Satan is a title. The word means adversary. Satan is God's unrelenting adversary. And he is man's unrelenting adversary. So it was this Satan, this adversary of God and of God's created order who arrived in the garden in the form of a serpent. And it was this supernatural adversary who originated sin, who led the first fall. God called him, excuse me, not God, but Christ called him a murderer from the beginning. Think about that. Satan, in the form of the serpent, arrived in the garden with murderous intent in his heart. He came to destroy the acme of God's creation, man and woman, and to ruin the rest of creation. And he's been at that work ever since. Now, what I've said to this point in this message is kind of scary. We have this supernatural adversary who is unrelenting in his attacks upon us. I mean, think about it. If the news headlines tomorrow proclaim that Vladimir Putin was determined to destroy the United States of America with nuclear weapons. How would you feel about that? that make you feel good? Tell you what, a lot of people would be panicking to hear that kind of news. Well, there's a sense in which I just gave you much worse news. This supernatural being who used to be the prime minister of God's angels in heaven has come to earth with murderous intent. And so I don't think I can finish this message. I don't think I can conclude this message without giving you some counterbalancing truth, some encouragement, some comfort. So while John in 1 John tells us that the whole world system lies in the palm of Satan's hand. Satan has no 
power whatsoever in the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ. Satan is a defeated foe. Jesus triumphed over Satan and his minions by means of his death and resurrection. The New Testament says that Jesus has disarmed principalities and powers. By his death, we're told, Jesus abolished Satan's power. Let me quote four promises of comfort found in the New Testament. Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Is that not beautiful? That's what happens when a person is genuinely saved. They are taken from the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of the son of love. 1 John 5.18, God protects. This is a little bit different uh, translation than our New King James. It's the Net Bible. God protects the one he has fathered, and the evil one cannot touch him. Then 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you, and guard you from the evil one. And then finally, one that I often look to, James 4 and verse 7, very simple. It says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, we could take a couple of more messages to focus on Satan, but I have no taste for that. In the second service this morning, we'll talk about the strategies of Satan, the limitations of Satan. We'll talk about how we must be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. But I do want to say one final word to anyone here this morning who is uncertain whether you belong to Jesus. If you're uncertain that you belong to Jesus Christ, that you have put your life in his hands, you need to be, you need to be aware, you need to understand that you are in the grip of a liar and a deceiver and a murderer who will use you up and then take pleasure in your destruction. That's what God's word says. And you can elude his grasp by simply bowing the knee to Jesus and saying, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. By putting your faith and trust in what Jesus did in his death and resurrection to deal with your sin, it's your sin that keeps you from God. And Jesus has taken care of that. 
And if you will put your trust in what Jesus did, his death and resurrection, you can be reconciled to God. You can become part of Jesus' kingdom. And then God can begin to pour all of the light and joy and love and goodness into your life. Whose are you this morning? In whose hand are you? Are you in the grip of Satan? 1 John 5 says, the whole world lies within the grip of Satan. The whole world system, anybody who doesn't belong to Jesus. Are you in Satan's grip? Are you in Jesus' hands? Jesus says, you're in my hands. No one can pluck you out of my hands. Could I have every head bowed, please, to every eye closed? Where are you this morning? You belong to Jesus. Can you say, I am his? I've trusted him. I've trusted his death and resurrection. I've put my life in his hands. If you're not certain of that, you know, as I... As I stood here at the Lord's table this morning. I told Jesus once again, as I often do, I'm yours. You purchased me with your blood. Everything that I own, every relationship that I have, every bit of my energy, it's yours. Do you belong to Jesus this morning? If you don't, there's only one other choice. This is this is binary. If you don't, you belong in Satan's hand, a liar and a deceiver and a murderer from the beginning. If you're uncertain, oh, deal with Jesus today. Run to Christ. He'll forgive you. He'll make you new inside. And he'll be, begin to pour God's wonderful goodness into your life.